ಓಮಜ್ಞಾನತಿಮಿರಂದಸ್ಯಾಜ್ಞಾನಂಜನಸಲಕಾಯಚಕ್ಷೂರುಮಿಲಿತಮೇರೇನತಸ್ಮೈ
So the mind is uh, is kind of central, if you will, to our sense's capacity to function as perceivers and thereby afford us experience. So it's the big sense, if you will, in that sense, the sixth sense that all the others depend upon being thought about, if you will, in order to deliver the uh, experience that they have the capacity to deliver. That's a conditional, qualified capacity, as I'm explaining them in relation to their dependence upon the minds, minding them. Good evening. Welcome. Also, then, the mind is different than the senses in the way that it functions. It functions much more like the atma than the senses do. It can um, accommodate far more. It can expand to include much more, for example, than we could possibly harness, if you will, with our senses. For example, we all come in the room here, and if I say to you, okay, Madhu, I want you to take everything in this room out, physically, carry it out, in one trip, you will think that is a little bit difficult, right? But if I ask you to take it all out with your mind, then you think it might be possible. So the mind is more accommodating in a sense. It's in a hierarchy, actually, from the senses, although it's sometimes called, as I say, the sixth senses, the sixth sense, because of its relationship with the senses, as I'm explaining, that makes them dependent upon it in order for them to function in their optimum. And, of course, above the mind is intelligence. These planes become more and more expansive, spacious, accommodating in that sense. Of course, accommodation is not merely space. That's important to note. If we move in a hierarchy from the sense objects, as the Gita explains it, to the senses themselves and to the mind, to the intelligence and to the self, we find, as I'm explaining, that the various domains, the domain of the sense object, the domain of the senses, the domain of the mind and intellect, as we go up this ladder, they become more spacious and in that sense more accommodating. And of course, above it all, the Gita says, is, is the self, the Atma, more accommodating, identified as it is with Brahman, which fosters the idea of just space and big and all-encompassing, beyond time, beyond space, how accommodating can that be? However we may arrange things within time and space, the limits of time and space we'll have to be confronted with nonetheless. So if we can move beyond the limits of time and space, then it may be reasonable to conclude that that space, if you will, is more accommodating. But of course in Vaishnavism we don't we seek to qualify that further and we move from what has become limited by time and space, our material experience, that realm, to the realm of Brahman, that is all accommodating, all spacious, being beyond time and space, to, for example, Bhakuntha. Again, it appears we've come within time and space. That would be the appearance, and that would be the objection also. In other words, if I speak to you at some length about the limit of form, material form, the limits of time and space, and you may follow me, and when I say that you are of another nature that is not confined by time and space, or need not be, and we take you, at least theoretically, beyond the limits of the body and mind and so forth. You may follow very easily that kind of logic. It's rather simplistic logic, if you will. The logic of the polar opposite of being limited by time and space 
by the limitations of forms and names and things that are here today and gone tomorrow, by the, the logic of the, just taking the polar opposite, if you will, of the, of the kind of limiting life or limited life that we will have in pursuit of enduring happiness that is in relation to things that don't endure. It's not hard to follow that if I, all of us, and we are in pursuit of enduring happiness, it will be folly to pursue it in relation to things that don't endure. That's not too hard to follow. It's pretty hard to follow. <laughs> it's easy to think about, but it's a little harder to follow. But to think about it is not so difficult. Then, if having arrived there, theoretically, at a much more accommodating space and at a place where the prospect of arriving at our destination, achieving our pursuit, enduring happiness, beyond things that don't endure, ceasing to identify with things that don't endure in pursuit of enduring happiness and identifying with that, that which is enduring ourself, the experiencer, rather than the experience of forms and names and things and so forth. There are more important things in life than things, is the idea. So that's not hard to go there, theoretically, I hope. But then to go from there and to be speaking about planets and the form of God and all such things that on their face seem very similar to the world of forms and names that we describe as being a limiting experience and getting in the way of our pursuit of enduring happiness. So it becomes a little complicated, but what is being spoken about there then when we move from Brahman to Vaikuntha, Vaikuntha to Goloka? It becomes even smaller, doesn't it? Brahman is big. Vaikuntha, it's, it's, then Vaikuntha seems a little smaller. Golok seems even smaller. Vaikuntha is big. It's grand. Aishwarya, it's, uh, it's adhoksaja. It's overtly different. But some similarities are there, nonetheless, to our experience of the world, names and forms, at least theoretically, that perhaps cause in the mind a doubt. Brahman is bigger. Vaikuntha is smaller. Goloka is even <laughs> smaller. Uh, but the idea is that, as I said earlier, accommodation does not amount merely to space. Mahaprabhu Sri Chaitanya Dev lived in a small room for the balance of his uh, retired life, the Gambira. Have you been there? In Jagannath Puri? It's about eight by eight. He was said to be seven feet tall, so that's pretty. <laughs> it's a pretty small room, but from within that room, small space, he generated an ocean of, of, of love of God that we ourselves, centuries later, are, are being touched by, riding the waves of, to some extent, or drowning in, as may be the case. So. Space in of itself is not the be-all and end-all of accommodations. As I said before, you could live in a closet if you lived there with someone you loved. It could be a very small place, but if it was affectionate, then it would be bigger than the whole, the whole of, of London. Right? You could have the whole world, but nobody loved you and you didn't love anyone. So Gaudiya Vaishnavism wants to speak about this. When we speak of consciousness, then we speak of something that's big and accommodating and, and beyond the mind. Mind is like consciousness. That's how it's different from a body made up of senses. It's flexible in a way that the senses are not. It's the medium mind through which consciousness speaks to, informs, and participates in the world of the senses. 
It's matter, like the senses, but it's different because it's subtle. Because of its subtleness and flexibility, it's more like consciousness, and then, and therefore, is a suitable medium to translate, if you will, or to to inform, to for consciousness to relate through to the gross world of names and forms and, and so forth. So it's more spacious, it's more accommodating. I'm going up, of course, self is more accommodating, as I said. Brahman is more accommodating. But in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, we don't want to talk simply about consciousness. We want to speak, well, we do, but we want to speak, we don't want to limit the discussion. We want to speak about the consciousness of consciousness. That is the idea. And in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, the consciousness of consciousness, if you will, has been explained by Jiva Goswami to be love. So, there's something that is bringing consciousness to life, so to speak. It is imbued with Shakti. We're talking about God, the Godhead, being the source of consciousness. And Krishna means what? That the Shakti of that consciousness is fully fully manifest. This is Radha. And so Krishna's this consciousness is dancing. So point is what? That accommodation is not merely space but affection. So these moving from Brahman to Vaikuntha means to move to a more affectionate plane of experience. And if we study carefully we see, oh, there's more affection there. There's rasa. There's reciprocal dealings. Love will be valued on a scale of reciprocal dealings. The more we connect, the more there's reciprocation, the more the love is, is taking place. So there's a connection there between the jiva and Brahman. And it's kind of growing, if you will. Reciprocal dealings are more facilitated in Vaikuntha, so it's bigger. And Goloka, which appears even smaller, is even bigger still, because the possibility of reciprocal dealings in love is increased many-fold. That's why all of the Vaikunthas, all of Brahman, all of the world and the worlds of our minds and senses are all included within the Golok. This is the idea. So mind, anyway, is more accommodating on a much going further down than the physical plane. And it very much drives the, the world of our physical experience because it's the medium through which we kind of contact the world. Consciousness. Mind has a way of being flexible, and so it, it's... Um, Anyway, it's a suitable medium for consciousness, which is even more flexible, which is important to note then, that if you become a devotee and you grow, you should become more fixed, more flexible than, than rigid, actually. Mahaprabhu spoke of devotion that was fixed, and it fosters a sense of being rigid. And, but if we study what he said about it, he said, if you want your kirtan to be sada, fixed, always, you have to become very flexible. He said, you have to bend. If you cannot bend that much, then your bhakti will never be fixed and you will never get to prem, which is so flexible. So flexible. So accommodating. So, really fixed devotee means flexible. Who will be fixed in bhakti will not see black and white. What to speak of thinking black is white and white is black, which comes from black and white thinking. When black and white thinking meets with a more essential understanding of a tattva or of a, or a principle and 
refuses to, to bend and go forward and grow, which is what spiritual life asks us to do, to change. You have to change. You have to move. Sometimes people write me and they say, Oh, Maharaj, you spoke about how we should have association of devotees and that we'll grow by that good association readily. But there are no devotees where I live. What should I do? So I tell them, move. They never write back. <laughs> Usually. <laughs> so, so you have to move. Love is uh, born out of sacrifice. You know, love sounds good. Sacrifice sounds a little ominous and, and not, not very inviting. Love is very inviting. Sacrifice, and I'll step back. If we speak wonderfully or beautifully, poetically, even in a compelling way about the, the ideal of spiritual life, many people will be attracted. Then if we turn the conversation to how to go there, people will have something else to do. More important things that will not be as comfortable of a, of a discussion. So change, we have to change. Fixed means to become flexible. It, it means that... that Spiritual life is is um, is not um, what do you want to say set, set in stone. We 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 feel that we will get comfort by controlling, getting things under control, making things static. In other words, it's controlled. I've got this much money. I can pay this mortgage. I've I figured this out, and I'm trying to put things in place all the time set them in place. The reason it doesn't work is because the self is not like that. You understand? It's not, it's something, if the mind is flexible in comparison to the senses, and the senses are flexible in comparison to the objects of the senses. Here's an object of the sense, it has to sit here. The sense of sight can, go, can choose it or another one. You understand? It's more flexible. Mind is more flexible. Intelligence is actually more flexible. You can reason about anything any way you want. And self, how much more flexible. And, and, and the whole idea of Krishna is, oh, the Absolute is extremely flexible. He's moving and in relation to his devotees and, and so many forms. Krishna is too. Bhagavan Swayam are coming from him. So many avatars, so many descents, so many phases, so many different expressions of himself. He's like a dark sapphire. And if you turn one way, you see one thing, another way, another thing. So many facets to the jewel. So how much flexible we should be become but then we tend to take our material tendency to control and think that thereby we become comfortable and secure and, and carry that disposition and that, that, that way of uh, thinking into our spiritual life. Hmm? So we want one explanation of every verse. If there's two and two devotees speak about it in two different ways, it becomes may become problematic for us. And so these... Of course, our, such experiences are uh, opportunities to grow. When, when, when we don't grow in relation to that, when we are actually called by the essence of the spiritual culture that we are involved in to grow beyond our limited understanding of what we think, for example, Krishna consciousness is, what you think it is is one thing, what it is is maybe something very different, similar but different, in as much as the mind is similar to consciousness, but very different also. Similar to the senses, but different. So, we are students, and as Buddhist Maharaj used to say, forever. We want to be masters and control, and we think, therefore, thereby we'll be, everything will be set up, we'll, it'll be comfortable. <laughs> but we have to live with the idea that we'll be students forever, ever-growing, finding new information, and I thought I'd understood that. Now I think, well, it's, it's different than that. It's that, and it's more than that. And 
and so forth. And so opportunity for us to grow like that comes from good good association. That's what in the good association of saintly persons is not there to just pat us on the back. It's meant to challenge us and make us feel uncomfortable. So if you're feeling uncomfortable, <laughs> I guess I'm doing my my job. In other words, it's supposed to challenge our intellect and our thinking. We have to frown our brow. What is he talking about? This sounds different. It's some similar ideas I've heard, but it's different at the same time. Is that right? And, uh, this this is uh, this is to help us grow. Hmm? We should become so Krishna conscious that whenever whatever vocabulary it's spoken in, we can understand it. What to speak of that? That we can understand whatever anyone is saying to be a form of Krishna consciousness. Mahaprabhu Sri Chaitanya did. He heard a love song, a cinema song. I don't know what we call them here in London, but anyway, a popular song. In his mind during Rathiyatra, he heard and he sang a popular song from Kavya Prakash, secular Ras Shastra, but it's equivalent to whatever, you know. I'm an old-timer, so, you know, the Beatles, whatever. Uh, I remember getting on the plane once, India bound, and I heard uh, then, and, you know, they had the music in the background, and... But I, it was different. It wasn't John and George and Paul, and they had, you know, this whole orchestra of different instruments, but I could understand because I was familiar. I had a sung scar for that. I could understand, oh, that's you know, such and such song. Now, someone else without that wouldn't be able to perhaps put the two together. So we should be able to hear, be when we become situated, as I say, in Krishna consciousness, we grow in Krishna consciousness, to understand it in in the different languages, if you will, it may be spoken in by different saints from different angles and so forth, and extending, as I say, beyond that to the point where, as properly used to say, consciousness means Krishna consciousness, like light means sun. So sun is the cause of light, whether directly or indirectly, through causing rain and lightning and electricity and, and, and so on. So consciousness, he used to say, means Krishna consciousness. So, Nam Nam Akari Bahuda. And he decided, Shakti, Mahaprabhu said, God has many names. Nam Nam Akari Bahuda. And, and in the sutras we find that all the gods and goddesses are names of God, names of Krishna, and all the names of all the people. And, I mean, people usually don't name their kids bad person. <laughs> they say, she's beautiful, her name is such and such, Sundar, her name is, his name is such and such. They try to find the good qualities. And Krishna has not 64 qualities, 64 million, zillion qualities. <laughs> Rupa Goswami is listed 64. We shouldn't think those are the only qualities that he has. Those are some prominent ones that come to mind. And some will be prominent to those in Sakyarasa. Some will be prominent to those in Madhuryarasa. Others will be prominent to those in, in Vatsalyarasa. And there are so many more. Hmm? So, where is the object of our love? We think it's on the shelf. Close, open, close it. For a small moment we'll open. And the rest of the time, uh, the real world will go on. <laughs> we put them in a closet in a small corner. But in time, we'll see that the object of our love is universal. And the reason that we sometimes falter on the spiritual path is because we don't yet understand the object of our love to be universal. Because if he was there, then we wouldn't act in ways that were inappropriate. In the temple, you act in one way. But... Oh, everyone has some secrets, right? <laughs> right? The dark side. So, we push that aside. In good company and so forth, but it's there. And if we understood that the good company was with us all the time, then, and there were no secrets, <laughs> only we thought we were hiding something. Om Tad Vishnu, 
paramam padam. Like a big eye on the padam. He's that song from Brahma Samhita, they sing it in the skan every morning. Yeah. What is the verse I'm thinking? Yasya sakalendriya vittimanti pashanti panti kalayanti chirambalanti. So, his feet can see. Om tad vishnu paramam padam. Under the feet of Vishnu, Rig Veda mantra. The watchful eye, so to speak. So if we could grow and see the universality of the object of our love, then we know, oh, he's with us always. That would chasten us then. He never leaves us. We leave him. We think we do. That is called Maya. So to grow, this is important. And the challenge is of the saintly people is to help us do that. And to that effect, they seek to challenge our understanding, maybe speak about the same subject in a different way so that our tendency to make the tradition dead and fixed and so forth, because we're talking about mind in a very extended sense. Mind is material, so it seeks to make the spiritual like itself also. That's why it has to be controlled. That's why it can be the friend, as the Gita says, or the enemy of the self. Misery loves company, so mind seeks to it, it, it take the life, if you will, out of the spiritual. For example, Krishna, avatar, the descent of Krishna into the world of our experience, of our mental and sensual experience, is in one sense for the purpose of taking us out of that limited frame of reference. But the mind seeks to keep him within the frame of reference and make him smaller than he is. And intellect also. So these have to be harnessed by the self. Otherwise they will abuse the self and abuse that which comes to free the self from their, their oppression if you will. So mind, anyway, is an interesting topic. And yes, the mind is affected by the body, which is how you begin, and the body is affected by the mind. So they're one, as I've explained. Mind is one of the senses, but it's a very different sense also, and all the others are dependent upon it. If we control our senses, it will help us to control our mind. Out of sight, out of mind, they say. That's on the very rudimentary level. But if we can situate ourselves such in a favorable environment for spiritual life, then there's possibility of inner life where the mind becomes captured. Try to capture your senses. Use your intelligence and don't let your senses follow your mind. If the senses make a wedding with the mind, and the two of them capture the intellect, then everything is lost. We are separate from the animals, it's said, because we have the power to reason. But if we reason only how to be a bigger animal, that is very dangerous. If intellect becomes corrupted by the mind and senses to work, for their demands, they have a very dangerous animal. And we see what happens with that, <laughs> that consciousness disappears. That is nars- oh, well, materialism, naturalism, physicalism. They think that consciousness is, there's nobody there, the lights are on, but they say there's nobody home there. They philosophize about it certain interpretation of empirical evidence and, and the attachment to matter which causes the intellect to function in a particular way as to do away with the idea that there's a self. Therefore, we need good, good, good help, good guidance. We need something from outside of the realm of intellect. Shastras, this revelation, this idea of revelation and the sadhu and so forth. We need our intelligence to be tied to that. That's why we, we want our shraddha to be shastriya 
shraddha, our faith, which is budding and komal and tender and so forth, to be strengthened by the argument that we find in Revelation in the Upanishads, for example. And it's reasonable to be strengthened by that, an argument that is supported by example. We cannot prove that the metaphysical claims of those of the mystics who experience the self and the absolute are valid, but we can demonstrate that their experience is one that if you experience it, you will look at life very differently. You'll believe those metaphysical claims, in other words, even though you won't be able to demonstrate them necessarily. That's that's not possible. It's a powerful experience. It's not a. It's it's. I mean, that's yoga. It's very interesting because we say, sacred texts they tell us that consciousness is independent of matter, and so the experiment that it offers is isolate yourself from matter for all intents and purposes, as far as you can, while embodied, which is only to a certain point, and see the extent to which you function and flourish. It would seem that if the consciousness was material, then the less material facility that it had, the more it would disappear if it was dependent upon matter, a certain material circumstances. In order Manifest. But the whole idea of yoga, of course, is that in Vedanta is that you, for all intents and purposes, you separate yourself from matter. I mean, if you're living in a cave, you have no social life. You eat what, whatever you know comes. From a basic, uh, you know, Londoner's point of view, uh, how can you be alive? You don't do that. You don't do that. You don't have this. You don't have. So, but but actually, he's flourishing in, in, in a way that. The commoner is not. He's happy. Right? He's satisfied. That's why he's not moving. He's satisfied. So the experience is that the more we separate consciousness, we theory is consciousness different from matter, and that the experiment is separate consciousness from matter. That's what yoga is. And does it flourish or does it become diminished? We find that it flourishes. The experiences that it flourishes, that I become bigger. And how do you become bigger? Consciousness grows, if you will, and expands the more we become selfless. And it contracts the more we become selfish. And in, within our material experience, we, we already know that to be true. Everyone agrees that selfishness is unbecoming on some level. Even thieves are against thievery when they ask to divide the loot honestly among one another. So it's a universal kind of principle. Selfishness is, is unbecoming. We become small. And by giving, we become big. And if one doesn't take it all, then to that extent, the person must be big, must have grown. So. It's an interesting theory <laughs> and uh, worth pursuing. And that, of course, is the whole idea of Shastra, to wed our intellect to the Shastra, to the to revelation. Often revelation is thought of as something that we'll believe in without thinking. But the Shastra asks us to think very much. It asks us to think how small is the mind, how small is intellect. The Bhagavatam is a, is a huge bashing of the intellect. And at the same time, it makes a demand, that you have to employ your intellect fully. It bashes the intellect by way of saying it, it, it's not an independent knower. To know intellectually is not to know. It's not because you have intellect you can know, but the intellect gets in the way of knowing. It bashes it in this way, and then when it puts it into place, it says, oh, now we'll take advantage of it. Now we'll, we'll employ you in relation to revelation. So then, then the, the, we call that Shastra Yukti, reasoning that seeks to further the argument of sacred revelation, explain it, bring it to life, and so forth.
That is the purpose of intellect. And the intellect functions in this way. It serves to wean us from the, the utter of the mind and, and senses demands that take us in the direction of animality. So what is the meaning of saying that humans are a rational animal if we don't use our reason to do anything more than be a big animal? Right? What is the meaning then? And what does the animal do? It just simply moves according to the oppression of the sensual demands. We don't find the animal saying, okay, you first. Put the food out there, everybody goes. <laughs> they don't say, they're driven too much by the demands, oppressed by the demands of the senses to be able to do much of anything voluntarily. Human life gives us the opportunity to do something voluntarily. That means to love, to sacrifice. Love is the opportunity of human life. Now, how to hone that? How to become a lover in a full sense? Two things are required. Love must be unmotivated. And in order to be unmotivated, it has to have a perfect object of love. There has to, if you're to give unlimitedly, you have to find an object that will take unlimitedly. Krishna's two, Bhagavan, Swayam, that's the whole idea. He's depicted like that, the taker. A fellow asked some time back that Krishna is an enjoyer and Jesus was the sacrificer. Therefore, Jesus is a better idea of God than Krishna. In fact, Krishna is the opposite. And I said, well, you see, if there is to be a sacrificer, a giver, there has to be a receiving end. Krishna depicts the receiving end of the sacrifice of the Christ or whomever. And because the receiving end is the receiving end, is the worthy object of love, it functions differently than one who tries to be the center and can't provide for the circumference. Like the stomach is the center. So if we feed the stomach, then the whole body is nourished, right? If we water the root, the whole tree is nourished. So Krishna is the enjoyer. That's true. But by his enjoyment, everyone is nourished. So anyway, so we, we, when we have, of course, then further answer, we have Krishna as the sacrificer. He is our deity. That is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Krishna has come as the sacrificer as well. He, he has shown better how to sacrifice than anyone. As Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he gave up Vishnu Priya. No, he can't make a bigger sacrifice than that. The man who had everything sees everything, all good fortune. For us, for us, he did that. This is the magnanimity of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So we should be embarrassed by that and become reasonable. And reasonable means if we if we say we're rational animals, then we must act rationally. And that means we must act differently than animals. Or does a rational animal just mean a bigger animal? I, I suppose some people think that. And they use your reasoning just to find better ways to, to become entangled um, with the sense objects and driven by them. Who's going to drive the vehicle of our sense of self materially? Are we going to be driven by the intellect or are we driven by the senses? If our intellect is only used to find better ways to gratify our senses, then who's driving? The intellect or the senses? So if we're actually to be intellect-driven, then we should see that as persons we are moving away from animality. And if we agree to that, then we only have to discuss how we can best move away from animality. Through social welfare, what will be the object then of our giving? In other words, we have to become givers. And we have to use the intelligence to restrict the senses. We have to distribute the wealth. Because 
some are less fortunate, or we become more fortunate. With, you know, different ideologies for for doing good in the world, but they all involve theoretically. Well, maybe not capitalism. I'm not sure. I have to think about that. But anyway, it does theoretically. It says you create a situation where people have some competition, and then they'll be driven by that to get more for themselves, and so. So all the ideologies are worth entertaining are to improve our life, to make ourselves better, to make ourselves kinder. The real inherent sense is that if we are to evolve, we will become kinder, not more brutish. Darwin's idea was the meaner you become, the more you will survive. But inherently we think that the more generous we become, the more kinder we become, the more we are have evolved. So, how to be more kind, how to be more generous, more flexible. Gaudiya Vaishnavism, if we look at the universals, it, you know, it really, it's very arguably the best proposition. So when you think about Krishna consciousness, you have to think about these things. This is about becoming more flexible. It's about becoming more of a giver, becoming a uh, gentler, kinder, to become a lover, ultimately. You should see, are these things coming to me? Or have I just gathered some information and I regurgitated it? My heart remains like a stone. I can't even love another devotee. Because he thinks a little differently than I do about the same, same, same subject. <laughs> so, anyway, some thoughts. Mind is different from the senses, but it's 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 similar at the same time. It's different from consciousness, but similar. That is its position. A little bit tatasta, huh? So is it because of that similarity that it's able to be affected by so the senses can affect the mind because they are similar in one sense? Well, the senses can affect the mind because the mind is more tied to the senses. If the mind is strained not to answer the call of the senses for good reasoning, scriptural reasoning, and through spiritual practice, then to a lesser extent will the mind be influenced by the senses. And rather that mind then will influence the senses. It will become easier to forego or whatever to act like, uh, forego acting like a wild um, animal. Senses are powerful. So these things are given in a hierarchy, the sense objects, senses, mind, intelligence, and uh, and you, and then Godhead, and so forth. And so you have to kind of put it in perspective and then not allow the senses, the sense objects to rule. A sense-object-ruled life is the opposite then of a God-ruled life. So, another question? Complicated, huh? <laughs> it's a little complicated. Yes? Um, in the first conference, there is a, a conversation with Yasudeva and Nada and Vyasadeva is in doubt because he's still unsatisfied after writing all the Vedas. And we know that Vyasadeva is in incarnation. Uh, is this whole situation to maybe show the importance of uh, spiritual master, of being guided by a spiritual master? If Vyasadeva is in doubt, although he's in incarnation, Mm-hmm. Well, there are many things to be um, learned, and I suppose that is one lesson that one could uh, draw from that. Vyas required Narada's counsel to be relieved of his despondency and understand his error and proceed in such a way that he might be fulfilled. But your question seems to be 
how could Vyas, as an incarnation, have a doubt, be despondent, and be confused? So your question is, is it some kind of a play, some kind of a drama? And he's really not confused, he's really not in doubt, and it's only there to teach us that Narada, as his guru, is required and therefore we, we need a guru. I think there's more to it than that. I think that the idea is that it's that the nature of the subject is such that no one can finish it. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, let us give another example. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Krishna, but he's confused. Krishna is confused. That's Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Krishna suffering from an existential crisis. That is what we call Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So we think, how can Krishna be suffering an existential crisis? I'm supposed to resolve my existential crisis by identifying with Krishna. And now I find he's having an existential crisis. <laughs> so... <laughs> But so the point is such is the nature of spiritual spiritual life. It has a kind of a doubt in it, built into it, that is nonetheless um, reassuring. Just like love. What is the nature of love? She loves me, she loves me not. This is Krishna. Picking the clover, she loves me, she loves me not. And Subal saying, she loves you, she loves you. Don't worry about it. So, love, as I said before, we cannot rest until we find love. And when we find it, can't rest either. It goes like this. It doesn't go like this. We're going like this, with emotional ups and downs, trying to find love, and we think when we find it, finally I can rest, I found my love. And then once we find it, it starts going like this in a different way. You won't want to get off of that, or you might, but you don't. <laughs> but love is exciting. It's 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 sambhog. It's vipralamba. It's it's union and it's separation, and uh, especially this uh, romantic love is like this. There's a security in it, but the nature of it is that it's also bewildering and causes some. Some doubt only to be answered, only to doubt, only to be answered. So union and separation, something like this. So Krishna's existential crisis, that is like the height of exploring, well, the height of exploring the depths of, the depths of love. And we find that it's, it's dynamic, it's moving, it's not static. And consciousness is actually dynamic, not static, so it works. But, we're looking, and are arguably for good reason, to end all doubt. But it's something like we're seeking to stop all movement in relation to the sense objects. Like Shankar would say, if you're, if you're fulfilled, why move? If you're full, then you have no want. But Mahaprabhu says, yes, that's true. But if you're full, out of necessity, of real fullness, you may have to move. Not out of any need, but out of celebration. So that is Leela. Karma is a movement out of necessity. Leela is a movement out of necessity also, but the necessity is different. Movement in the realm of karma that is out of necessity is a, is a perceived necessity of a lack. And the movement of Leela is a movement that fullness needs to celebrate itself. So, in, in point being that in spiritual life we find all things. But Gita says that Brahma Bhuta Prasanatma Naso Chati Nakankshati Samastavishabhuti Shu. No hankering, no lamenting. This is spiritual life. But if we go further, we find Mahaprabhu is full of hankering and lamentation. Bhaya Visha Jvala Hoi Bitare Anandamoy Krishna Preme Radbhuta Charita. 
the charit, the character of Krishna Prem, the Adbhuta charit, the wonderful character is that outside it looks very disconcerting, but inside it's Anandamai, full of Ananda. And love is like that too. You're advised not to get it between two lovers and try to sort it out. Take one side or the other, they'll both turn against you <laughs> in due course. So Vyasa's doubt is part of the whole exploration of the nature of the, of the subject. Mahabharata was Krishna. He came to experience himself further and he seems to be growing and wondering and and his devotees are starting to think he must be Krishna. But if he's Krishna, where are his associates? And then they start to realize, we are his associates. What are we doing here? This is another Leela. And so there's the yoga, yoga maya. So Vyas knows everything. He's Vyas, right? He knows everything. And still, something to be known. The nature of Prem is that although it's full, it's always increasing. So Vyasa is showing that. He also showing all knowledge, I gave all knowledge, not fulfilled. So knowledge won't be sufficient. Love, bhakti. So these are other ways to think about his despondency. Narada told him, come out and say it. He knew it. He did say it. Vyasa said, you know, he wrote more covertly about about bhakti than overtly. And Narada said, people won't get it. You have to come right out and say it. And we see, even when you come right out and say it, they don't get it. That's the Bhagavatam. It's saying it very clearly, still people don't get it. They're misinterpreted and so forth. So, it's very elusive. Love is very elusive. Even while we're all pursuing it, it comes before us. We don't recognize it sometimes. So, so Nari told him, yes, come right out and speak about it. Write the Bhagavatam. He had already written the Bhagavatam but not in the way that he wrote it, the, the final edition. Or even we have the edition after he wrote it. And now it's being heard by Sukadev, heard from Sukadev, after having heard from Sukadev, what he taught Sukadev. He taught it to Sukadev. Then he learned it from Sukadev. He says, you understand, that's the nature of the subject. I taught this to you. Now I have to learn, let me learn it from you. What, what did it do to you? And Sukadev spoke. Oh, yes. Therefore, Borayantas Parasparam Tushyanti Cha. Therefore, I ask any questions. You have something, role to play here. It's not as I'll come and speak. I got talk to the wall then. You have to, it's participatory. And thus the language of the scripture, poetry, is a participatory language. It's not a controlling language or a measuring language or a descriptive. Like math is a descriptive language and lends itself readily to control and to measure. But life cannot be controlled, measured, and descriptions of it will always fall short. So this is not an appropriate language to actually understand. Poetry is a more appropriate language to understand the mystery of life because it's it's a participatory language. And in poetry, anything can happen. The, wing, the moon can have wings and fly across the sky. And life is like that. It's bigger than your imagination and what can happen in your imagination. It's much much bigger than that. So, what else? Another question? Yes. Maharaj, uh, I have a hard time understanding consciousness and desires. Because I was thinking that, isn't consciousness state-specific? Like, if the more and more, the more down up your consciousness is, the more you are in tune with certain realities or with something different. 
the more what? The, the more you are, uh, your, your consciousness, the more developed it is, the more in tune you are with certain realities or some, something, a reality other than what uh-huh. everyone else sees. Uh-huh. We, we, have, we have people who, who are uh-huh. on different levels who think, who are, who are more in tune with, uh-huh. like Christopher Dorys, they're more uh-huh. in tune with certain realities. Uh-huh. And um, I was wondering that if we, all of us, all, all devotees and materialists, both are working in a particular field, depending on uh, a particular field of the consciousness. Because uh, as if their consciousness is not as developed, they will be they will be, they will be working on, they will be working in, in, in a different field. So, so being in that field, how how can a jiva, how can a living entity have a desire to operate out of it? Like say suppose suppose a materialist. This might this might also ask the question that. When you go out to preach, not many people would take up the Krishna consciousness because they are operating in a field of their own, depending on how advanced their consciousness is or how developed it is. So, how do we influence someone to think beyond what they are right now, to move out of what, how, what they are, uh, the field in which they are operating, to move from that field into another, to think, to think differently? Because how do you do that? Yeah, how do you do that? Because because. Consciousness would dictate your desires. Would it? Or Consciousness is answering, in a sense, to the to the environment. There is an identification on the part of the atma with matter, and then it that identification causes matter to take on a life, kind of like a reflection. Consciousness touches the mahat and activates it. And then it becomes attracted to the movement that it's created in a way that, that it identifies with that. We call that a hunkar. So consciousness is identifying with the movements of matter and develops then desires in relation to the movements of matter. And so if you have experience of the self, theoretically and more so experientially, then you have the capacity to influence people to move away from that reflection, if you will, and in the direction of their self. It's just a question of association. Not really, your question seems too simple in one sense to, which leads me to think you're trying to ask something else. Because if people have material desires, and you're asking how can you get them to move beyond them or see through them and so forth. Well, you know, in one sense, you can do that to the extent that you've done that, and you share, then, your thoughts and experiences and so forth, because their life is merely, largely just a composite of their own experiences, the experiences of others, information they've gotten from others, and so on and so forth. If you're carrying different information and different experience and so forth, and people associate with you, then it's only by association with matter that they have the desires that they have. So if they have other association, other information and so forth, then the possibility arises for them to expand their horizons. Right? I was, also, I was also wondering that if, if you have a particular kind of consciousness... What kind you got? Uh, sorry? For example? For example, if, if it could be not only the materialists, it could also be the devotees. If, like, we, we see devotees on different levels, have yeah. different consciousness. Okay. So, so, whatever level you are on, with yeah. whatever consciousness you're having at, at the moment, isn't that your desires will be influenced by the consciousness? Or the... Because... Or the consciousness, does the consciousness influence the desires, or the desires influence consciousness? You know what I'm saying? Can the desires be independent of your consciousness? Because if consciousness is state-specific, then you will have desires, which will be, which will be limited. Yeah, well, desires, they we call vasanas. You know, they're, they're largely a product of the environment. They're external to the, to the self. Material desires are not intrinsic in the self, in consciousness. The capacity to desire is intrinsic to the self, but material desire is not intrinsic. It's an environmental 
a product of the environment. That's why we call tatasta. So tatasta means that you're a product of your environment. You are your desires. Look at it like that. You are your desires. In other words, that's why, you know, in the television they have the advertisement for a particular automobile and somebody goes, that's me. Yeah, there I am. I'm right, you know, it's... And that's me, or a particular type of cigarette, right? Or a particular type of clothing and so forth. And so the advertisers are very expert in creating people, so to speak. So we are, materially speaking, we are our desires, right? But that's all extrinsic. It's not what we really are. It's just the product of the environment. So material desires are not intrinsic to consciousness. Therefore, the desires can change and so forth. Love of God, then that doesn't change. So spiritual desires, then, which are a product of association also, are nonetheless intrinsic in the sense that they are of the nature of consciousness and we're of the nature of consciousness. So it's a better fit. Whereas material desires, that's like a, a glove you know, on on the hand, so to speak, it's it's separate. It's oil on the water. It's it's different. So, so largely, our desires are a product of our environment, our association. So we're tatasta on the. So you can either be on the beach or on the water. You know, so one over the other. So, if you change the environment and association and so forth, then then you can change people's desires. Does that help? Yeah. What else? What's the time now? Ten to eight. Ten to eight. Okay. So, well, we've talked for a while. I appreciate your interest and questions. And, uh, um, you know, these talks are difficult because they're... I don't know everybody here, and some people have been devotees for years, and some people aren't, and some people are initiated, and some people aren't. So it's too high for some, too low for others, and... But I hope something for everybody was there, a little bit of nourishment and, and benefit. And overall, I think that you're benefited just by the noble idea of wanting to come to a gathering and, and, to, and to give the benefit of the doubt that there might be a spiritual association and sangha and, and persons worthy of hearing from, even if there aren't, you, know, you think like that, and make the effort to come to such a program, then there's growth in that. So, well done. So, hopefully, some of you will come in the morning and for other other evenings and so forth, and we'll meet again. Hare Krishna. Sri Sri Guru Vishnu Guru Parampara Ki Jai.